Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. Hello, with me today is a voice teacher, coach, conductor, arranger, author and director. His extensive career has seen him act as musical director for over 200 productions and his clients have included Ariana Grande, Ricky Lake, Leah Michelle, Sarah Jessica Parker, Natalie Portman, Britney Spears and Ashley Tisdale amongst many. His writings have appeared in Journal of Singing and he has recently published the book 88 Keys to Successful Singing Performances with co-author Dr Elizabeth Gerby. It's my pleasure to welcome Robert Bob Marks to the podcast. Bob, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, and thank you for having me. It's great to meet you. Yeah, how is it over there, over the pond? Well, COVID did change a lot of things. Having a pandemic in your backyard means I did do most of my teaching and coaching now online from my home in New Jersey instead of my office in New York. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very different situation where you don't have to commute in and out every day. And um, it gives me a lot of flexibility, but it doesn't give me that personal contact that I kind of missed in my office, yeah. having somebody in the room with you where you can stop and correct something, do it again, play the melody for them and kind of do a more give and take. Because mm, mm. you accompany, you, you, you've always accompanied, haven't you? So that must have been a real yeah. shift. Well, it's a shift because I can't simultaneously accompany a singer while they're singing on Zoom or FaceTime. So I have a little tiny, a little tiny keyboard, like 22 keys, where I can just demonstrate a melody or what do what I need to do. Mm. But uh, yeah, it's different. It's different only playing the piano once a week. I go to my office on Sundays and it's like, wow, I haven't played for seven days. That, I mean, my whole life has been, I've been in this office since 1977. Wow. So I spent a lot of time in that office. Yeah, yeah. Just a new world. Well, let's press rewind a little bit because you mentioned in the prologue or the overture of your book that by the time the first draft had actually been completed, you had just conducted your 90,000th voice lesson, which is quite yeah. something. Well, I started a, um, a spreadsheet. Um, I think I went back to 1980 because um, I wanted to see if there was a pattern, like a slower week where I could take off and be with my kids, go on a vacation, do something normal. Uh, it turns out there was no pattern, but I had the foresight to just add a cumulative total to the bottom left. And one day I looked at it and it was like, oh my God, you're over 60,000 lessons, that's crazy. And then it was quickly 70, 80 and 90 and by now it could be a hundred, I don't know, but it's it's a lot of lessons. But I started coaching when I was 15 years old. So that's kind of early to start. I didn't know that what I did was called vocal coaching. Mm. Um, I took my sister to her first voice lesson with a teacher and she asked me what I did and I told her, she goes, oh, you're a vocal coach. I said, I am? Like I didn't know there was a thing. So had business cards printed and I became a vocal coach. At 15? 15. And I started renting studio space in New York and then luckily, when I was maybe 22, a voice teacher needed an accompanist for his voice lessons. And somebody recommended me. And then we ended up being roommates, like we shared the office space. And then he died. And then it was just like, okay, I guess I have an office now. Mm. Better, better make a living. Mm. 
So what did those lessons actually look like when you were 15? What did they entail? Well, even now, I don't really have a formula for the voice lessons because I feel everything is different. If you come in for your lesson and I gave you a song to learn last week, but you have a song to learn for an audition coming up, we just switch gears and go to that audition. Mm. We do warm-ups. We do scales and exercises just to make sure the voice is in good shape and healthy and warmed up. But um, then it, it just depends, whatever. People sometimes will ask, you know, what what will happen at our first lesson? I said, you know, it's like saying, what will happen on my first date? Depends. Depends the chemistry. It depends where you are, what you're doing, how you're reacting, what you want. I, everything just depends. So, I mean, I tr- what I try to accomplish is whatever the singer wants to accomplish. How do you advise a teacher be the most flexible and responsive in the moment? How can we do that successfully? I don't know if you can teach that. If you're a flexible and responsive person, then you will. I didn't take any lessons on how to be a voice teacher. Um, I learned a lot. I learned by my mistakes. I learned by my successes. Um, I learned by people coming back for more. I learned you never know what how somebody is reacting to your lessons because I have this girl later today. She took a lesson with me and then I didn't hear from her for like a month. So I figured, all right, she was not crazy about me. And then she booked six months twice a week. Like, I don't know. I've just learned. You just never, never know. Um, the main thing is to do more listening than talking. You have mm-hmm. to see what, what the singer wants, what the singer needs, what problems the singer is having with the music or with the performance. Um, a lot of it is enlightening on the meaning of the lyrics, because if you don't know what you're talking about, if you don't know what the words mean, if you don't know who you're pretending to speak to, it's very hard to be an actor. And if you're not an actor, why bother? You're not there to just make pretty sounds. So um, I try to accomplish all of that. So every lesson is different. Mm. What was the biggest thing that you came to learn about singing and the voice during your work as a conductor, arranger, and and musical director? I don't know if there was one specific thing. Um, I spent two seasons with the St. Louis Muni Opera, which is America's largest outdoor theater, over 12,000 seats. Mm. And uh, that was pretty sobering for a (laughs) 21-year-old. And um, I actually had to conduct on the town for a performance, and I really had never been a conductor. Mm. I called up a friend of mine, a Broadway conductor, and I said, I need you, I'm going to be uh, conducting on the town. He said, but you don't know how to conduct. I said, well, come over and show me. And so we took, at that time, our big record and the record player, and I got a stick, and he showed me how to get the orchestra in and get them out and cut them off and all that, and I did my best. Mm. But, but it um, was. <laughs> it, it, it worked. I mean, I, you know, it's funny. What you would do at 21, because they said, you know, do you conduct? I said, yes. I mean, I didn't know how to conduct. But you're much braver at 21 than 31, than Mm. 41. I mean, right now, if somebody said, uh, can you conduct this show? I'd say, no, it's not, you know, I would feel unqualified to do that. But I think when you're 21, you think you're qualified to do anything. I'm trying to reflect back on what I was doing at 15 and 21. I think I think I was probably still playing with Sylvanian families and Barbies. (laughs) (laughs) They're not being brave and thinking, I want to go and conduct. (laughs) Well, there there is something to know what you want early on, yes. but there is also something to being open to do anything. I mean, neither of my daughters had any specific goals or plans, and they went into very varying degrees of the business world. Um, mm-hmm. One of my daughters is uh, a director of privacy, of all things. 
She got her master's degree in public health because the business she was in paid for it, and they were they really wanted her to know that. Mm-hmm. And then she just gravitated into her field. Mm-hmm. My other daughter got a degree in economics and ended up working in the eyeglass frames field. So you never know. But I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So the thing is, I was doing it forever. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I wonder what would have happened if I had been open to doing different things with different people in different fields. Mm. But, you know, we get one lifetime. Just, and this one was you in your music. Yeah. I have no regrets. I'm only grateful that I'm able to make a living doing music because a lot of people can't make a living in the arts. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And, and why musical theatre? What was so interesting about that for you? I saw my first uh, musical theatre performance on Broadway when I was five years old. Mm. It was Jerry Herman's first show called Milk and Honey. Mm-hmm. And I was much more enthralled with the conductor and the orchestra players than I was what was happening on stage. And I was very fortunate to live very close to Manhattan in a borough called Queens. Mm-hmm. And uh, my grandfather would take me to the theater. My grandmother, we would see a lot of shows over the years. And it's just, it's something I loved. Mm-hmm. I never developed the knowledge and love of classical music mm-hmm. or opera. Um, now we know that the idea that if you sing opera, you can sing everything is not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. And we know that there's a stylistic difference depending on the music you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, of course, when I was, I did my first musical direction when I was 14. I was very fortunate. My mother worked in a dancing school and the Mm -hmm. dance teacher was doing a production of Damn Yankees. Um, that show, by the way, was only 14 years old, as was I. Mm. And um, the musical director left, and they needed somebody. So I worked cheap. You know, I was living at home, junior high school, and I was working with these high school students. And I really enjoyed the harmony and the playing the show and all of that. Um, but if you look at Damn Yankees now, they're still doing it. And Damn Yankees is 67 years old. Mm. Now, in 1969, if I did a show that was 67 years old, It would have been probably Gilbert and Sullivan or something from 1902. Mm. So music has changed so much over that 20th century time that um, I gravitated to what I heard. Yeah. And what's your favorite show now? You mean that's running or that I've seen? That you've seen. What's given you the most feeling? It's very hard to say because, first of all, feelings are different. Some are just laughter feelings and some are crying feelings. Mm. Um, I've seen a lot of shows. Um, I loved the show George M. That was in the late 60s, starring Joel Gray as George M. Cohan. Mm. He wrote, I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy and give my regards to Broadway and you're a grand old flag. And it was just such a wonderful crowd pleaser, toe tap and show. But mm. I love My Fair Lady. I love South Pacific. I love the classics. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. A drowsy chaperone. It just kept me laughing so much I had to buy another ticket for the next week because I couldn't hear the words. <laughs> so um, there's there's just a lot of shows. It's very hard. It's like saying, what's your favorite food? You know, it just depends. Is it dinner? Is it breakfast? Is it dessert? Oh. It's uh, different shows for different different people. Plus, as far as shows go, it depends on the cast that is on stage at that moment. Mm. I mean, I've had uh, students say, oh, I hate Oklahoma. I said, really? Where did you see it? Oh, my high school did it. I go, yeah, you didn't really see Oklahoma. You saw kind of a different version. Mm-hmm. And it's like people that go to Wicked now, they've heard the cast recording with Adina Menzel and Kristen Chenoweth. Mm. 
but that's not who they're seeing. Mm. So you have to be ready for different performances. And that would make, that's what make live theater so wonderful because it just depends on that day, that cast and what goes on on that stage. You, you have acted as musical director for over 200 productions. So was there anything that comes to mind or an experience that opened your eyes to something specific regarding how singers work and what they need in that network? I learned as I went, really. You know that at 14, I didn't know anything. Mm. So I learned a lot. The, the younger you are, the more you learn because the less you know. So I learned a lot. Um, I've done a lot of shows in very varying circumstances, a lot of dinner theater mm. in New Jersey. I was, you know, once people know who you are, it's just, they start calling. Yeah. So I worked a lot of dinner theaters in New Jersey. At one time I was doing like 10 shows at the same time, just musical directing one, playing piano for another, conducting another, recording the tracks for another. I was just very, very busy. Um, I love them all and I love the difference. You know, you do Hello Dolly, you do Shenandoah, mm -hmm. you do Showboat. They're very different shows, very different styles. And you just have to bend with them, go with them, and be experienced enough with them. Mm, mm. What was it that made you start studying voice and finding out answers that you had questions for? Well, I used to be under the assumption that singing was a natural thing and either you could sing or you couldn't sing. Mm which is not not totally untrue i mean there are people with talented voices that just sound wonderful i mean i have a nasally sounding voice that nobody would want to hear sing um although i do sing the right notes but um what happened was i had actually met a girl doing actually a production of hello dolly in new jersey and she was a speech therapist and i didn't know what that was or what that entailed and um kind of gradually I had left college because I was a music major and I didn't find that very interesting mm. and or relevant to what I was doing because back then they didn't have musical theater in colleges except in the drama departments mm. the music departments at least in my school were classical music and jazz neither of which I wanted to specialize in mm -hmm. um so I went back to college I took a course over the summer just to see if I could I was the ripe old age of 25 and um which I thought was pretty old to be going to college. And um, I loved it. I loved learning thing I didn't, things I didn't know. I loved learning things about anatomy, physiology, acoustics, phonetics, all the things that go into vocal production. Mm. And it gave me a lot more credibility with voice teachers. They felt at least I had some knowledge. And um, I finally got a college degree because I said, why should my kids say, well, dad never went to college. So um, I did, mm. and um, that, that was that. So mm. I, I use that knowledge every day. Mm. And did that start to show you that you were already instinctively using stuff without knowing the theory behind it, or did it open up a whole new book for you? Well, I've always believed that good singing should not be strained singing. Mm -hmm. It should not have tightness in the throat. Mm. Um, but of course, I didn't know the varying parts of the larynx. I didn't understand the respiratory system. I didn't know where the diaphragm was. That didn't that didn't affect me. I was always trying to work in healthy ways. Mm. Um, I was doing playing piano for the show Annie on Broadway, and um, of course, there's some very high belted notes in that show, mm -hmm. and it was. I really would. I even tried to change the keys, but they wouldn't do it. And so what I would do with, let's say, Hard Knock Life at rehearsals, I would play it down a third 
Mm. So the kids didn't have to hit a high F sharp each time. So um, I was very, very careful. Yeah, but yeah. that was while I was going to school and I learned what can happen to the vocal cords. Mm, mm. So what's your biggest tip now for reducing strained singing? I don't know that I have one tip. I mean, the, the stupid answer is to avoid strained singing, don't strain. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I try to put things in keys that are comfortable and appropriate. Mm-hmm. And I try to encourage my singers to go into a headier voice earlier than they would need to when they're just about to crack. Mm. Um, you know, so the passaggio is very, very important. Mm-hmm. And I try to get them, if they're belting a song, let's mark it a little bit. Let's do it a little softer. Let's just go through it. Let's get the notes. Let's get the words. Let's get the meaning. And then you belt it out. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that when you were working on Annie, you would take it down that third to, to help out mm-hmm. the kids. So what would be your advice to musical directors who perhaps don't have the same vocal understanding that you do to be as kind um, and and well, mindful? Well, luckily I was able to do that because I was able to play instead of, you know, that one, I was able to play. So that was that was a good thing because back then we didn't have transposing keyboards. Mm-hmm. So um, nowadays, of course, they can just push a button and play in any key they want. I would say don't have your singers strain. Don't have them sing things that are out of their range. Don't have them try to sing in a loud, shouty manner that's going to hurt their throat. Mm-hmm. Just keep vocal health right in the forefront and be very mindful of your cast and uh, the fact that vocal cords are very delicate things. Mm-hmm. What has changed about your teaching style and the tools that you use now? It's a, well, it's a big difference. It's a big difference because when I moved into my office, we had telephones, um, cassette recorders, tape cassettes, and that's about it. Then I got my first copying machine. That was a big deal because you could copy things. They were wet and disgusting copies, but at least you could make a copy. Mm-hmm. Um, then the fax machines and the cordless phones. And then I know I sound like an ancient person, <laughs> um, but the big change was MP3 files, digital transposing, um, PDF files, um, software that will let you write out music printed and change the key at will um websites like musicnotes.com that let you purchase songs in different keys so you're not just married to the one key that's in the vocal selections you have an option you have options um so this technology has really been our friend I, i don't understand people that are afraid of technology i embrace it i think it's great that i'm able to talk to you halfway across the world yeah you know it's pretty amazing so um, without technology, I don't think I could have worked through the pandemic online because, mm. A, there was no such thing as online. B, the old Skype-type software didn't work as reliably mm. as now, and we have much faster computers, and I'm able to send text messages with MP3 files, emails with PDF files, and keep everybody together. Mm. Yeah. And plus, I keep records. That's important. If I didn't know I needed to do that. And what happened was I was at a family gathering and one of my wife's cousins was a piano teacher. And I told her, I said, we talked about business and seeing students and such. And I said, it makes it very difficult because some students don't help me. It's just, I'll say, so um, how did the week go? I said, well, having trouble with the song you gave me. 
And of course, they don't tell me what song it was. And I have no idea what it was. <laughs> so I said, um, what song? They go, oh, the ballad. I go, okay, still no help there. So I, I eventually have to find out what song they're talking about. She said, well, why don't you take notes and write down what you do? Mm. I said, every lesson, every client, write down what I do? She said, it takes no time at all. And ever since that 1980s idea, I have cards for every client. So I know exactly, I know exactly what they're doing. I know what they're singing. I know where they are. I know anything I have to know about them, what key they're in and what trouble spots they're having. And it's, it's been a godsend. Mm-hmm. How did it feel when your first uh, named client came in, so to speak, a celeb voice, like you've worked with Ariana Grande and Britney Spears? How did that feel? Well, for the most part, they were not celebrities at the time. When Natalie Portman saw me, she hadn't won an Oscar. Mm. She was Natalie Hirschlag, who was just wanted to sing. Mm. Britney Spears was sent to me by her agent. She um, she had an audition coming up for Les Mis for Little Cosette, and um, she didn't, you know, so she needed me. Um, Ariana Grande was the younger sister of Frankie Grande, who was my student, mm. and he had just gotten his first Broadway show called Mamma Mia, mm-hmm. and at his opening night party. I met his little sister, and um, that's how we started to work together. Um, one of the first celebrity clients to me was a celebrity because she was going on Broadway. Mm. And that was like, oh, my God, I can't believe a Broadway performer is going to sing with me. Mm. And um, you know, it, was, it was nothing, but it was, it was something. And um, gradually, I was recommended for different things. Mm. And we were talking about preparing and being versatile for roles on Broadway just before we came on um, and and started recording this podcast. And we were talking about um, what Elphaba might need before she gets the role of Elphaba. And that was being Anessa Rose and being able to cover other parts in the show. So what do you advise singers who want to be or aspire to be on Broadway? when it comes to their vocal training? Well, I would say one of the main things is be realistic. Edina Menzel's shoes are very hard to fill. Not everybody can be Elphaba. Mm-hmm. And I find a lot of times people are either naturally Glindas or Elphabas, but many times they're hired to cover both parts. Mm-hmm. So it has to be a very specific singer that can do that specific kind of singing. Um, and many times they will be cast as Nessa Rose going on as needed for Elphaba and Glinda. Um, so I think the reality of what kind of voice do you have? Do you have the kind of voice that can belt out defying gravity? Mm. That's, I mean, that's, that's the thing. Um, you want to have songs in your repertoire that can show you can do it. But nowadays, more than ever, they're sending music and tracks to you and you have to learn the specific song from the specific show. Mm. It's, uh, it's changed things because it's no longer, okay, I'll, a country western type show, I have a country western song in my book, that's what I'll sing. No, they're going to send you a three-page song to learn. And uh, more than ever, you have to learn it and do a self-tape and send a video of you singing that song. Mm. So um, it's, a, it's a different world there. Mm. And what's your advice on self-tapes? Because the great thing is, is that you can do it again if you've made a mistake, which we don't get in the moment when we're in the audition room. But it also can feed into perfectionism, us having to do it time and time and time again because we're not happy with it and we run into trouble. So what was your advice there? Well, first of all, it's a wonderful thing to be in control of your own audition. 
You don't have to deal with a stranger at the piano. You don't have to try to prepare your music properly so that he can or she can read it at sight. You don't have to worry about tempo. You know what you're singing with. You have a track and you can do it again and again. If you do too many times, you're going to start hurting yourself and um, it becomes a negative. But people have to remember, sometimes you just have to do the best you can at that moment. Mm. You know, what I did for love, what 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 was right. Um, they say great art is never finished; it's abandoned. The the artist just finally goes, okay, that's it. <laughs> I gotta gotta move on. And um, you have to say, okay, this is the best recording I'm gonna make. And you know what? If you if you have a little crack or you miss a word or something, they're not gonna just turn off the tape and go, oh no. You know, you're lucky if they listen to it. Yeah. So it's a, it saves you a lot of time, money, travel, and effort to be able to just go into your place where you record and just show people what you are. See That way they see what you look like, they see what you sound like, and they get to know if they want to see you in person. Mm. Do you have a favorite thing to teach? Does anybody come in and they, they need a little bit of chest register help or their breath mechanism needs a little bit of a dusting off and you're like, yes, this is my bag, I love this bit. Well, I'm more geared in that way to songs. Mm. Like I love when they want to sing golden age music. You know, I love yeah. when they want to sing Cole Porter, or Irving Berlin, or Rogers and Hammerstein, or Rogers and Hart. Even um, that's kind of the music I grew up with. So it's um, I, I love that. But um, I'm happy to have different different styles, different needs. And mm -hmm. if I see that there is a breathing issue, I will do my best to take care of it. Mm -hmm. uh, enunciation pronunciation, everything else. And sometimes I'll just suggest, you know, instead of starting at a 10, let's start more at a three and build up to that 10. So you have some place to go, yeah. you know, and they go, oh, I could do that. Yeah. Mm. I mean, every once in a while, somebody will say to me, oh, I didn't know I could do that. Like they'll breathe in through their nose. And I, I say after the warm up, I'm going, you know, I noticed you only inhale through your nose. So well, my voice teacher said, that's how you inhale. I said, yeah, but it's kind of, the nose holes are really small. Maybe you could do it through your mouth. Oh, I could do that? Try it. And suddenly mm. I've opened up a door for them. They can they can take a breath. Mm, mm. So everybody's different. Everything is different. Every lesson is different. Mm. Finding repertoire for that golden age era can be tricky for people who haven't explored that era very much. So they, they'll probably benefit from listening and just being in the moment with that genre as it is. Do you have some song suggestions? I, it's kind of a blanket question because you're going to have to take the singer as they are and their vocal range and their abilities into into consideration. But where could somebody start with picking repertoire in that genre? Well, I would try to find roles that you could conceivably play. So if you conceivably are an 80 Annie, for example, mm. that's a good place to look. Then you can find out what performers have played the role of 80 Annie yeah. and look at their, go, go to iTunes and see what they've recorded, go to YouTube. There's so many tools now. Mm. Um, but just learn and study. When I started out, I didn't know anything about the 20s, 30s, or 40s, or 50s even. I mean, I didn't live through those. So I had to learn. I was very lucky. I I helped out a man named David Craig, who was a wonderful teacher of musical theater performing. And he needed my help when he came to New York because he didn't have a lot of his sheet music. Mm. Again, pre-PDF. And um, watching him work through those kind of songs really gave me a new appreciation. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
a new appreciation of Gershwin and Porter and all the, the standards. But I would start by looking at roles that you could play. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly listen to recordings, listen to club acts, go on YouTube. There's so much stuff out there. But you want to learn all there is. I had an adult client call me once and said, um, my agent got me an audition and says, I need to sing a Cold Water song. <laughs> but I don't know what that is. I said, what are you auditioning for? She said, 50 million Frenchmen. I said, well, that was written by Cole Porter. She goes, who? You know, it's kind of like, you got to learn. You got to learn the players. You know, you got to know what's going going on out there. And listen, listen, listen. Mm. And read. There's so many wonderful anthologies and biographies. And um, I just, I never get tired of it. Just keep Mm. going. And ask advice. I mean, see somebody like me. Mm. You know, I might not be able to tell you what rap song to sing, but I can certainly tell you what Golden Age song to sing or what contemporary Broadway song to sing. Mm-hmm. And you have to see what fits you, what fits your character, what fits your voice, what fits your personality, and most important, what you are going to audition for. If there's a specific audition you're preparing, mm-hmm. um, people that say, you know, how do I find a song? So, you know, well, what, what are you auditioning for? Well, just a song. I go, you know, if you go into a clothing store and say, I need clothes. They're going to ask you, you know, are you going to a party? Are you going to a sports event? Is it warm where you're going? Is it cold where you're going? I mean, there's a lot of questions. You can't just say, I want clothes. And uh, I feel songs are like clothing. You wear them. They take Mm -hmm. your shape. You know, they have to fit. They have to be altered. And they have to work for the occasion. Mm, I love that analogy. I'm going to steal that. (laughs) You, You got it. It's in the book. Amazing. Yes. Tell us about your book. Well, it's called 88 Keys to Successful Singing Performances. Um, I called it that because I personally don't like to read long chapters. Mm-hmm. I like to read small chapters. So with 88, I figured those would be small chapters. People can just read a chapter or two, or we call them keys, a mm-hmm. key or two, and or just look in the table of contents and say, what do I do about this? What do I, how do I put my music? What is a music book? You know, and just kind of get to know what's going on. Um, there's also a knowledge in there of vocal health, dealing with voice teachers, finding a voice teacher, finding a coach, preparing music for the accompanist, just all the things that you need to know. And I've been very gratified to get good reviews from the Journal of Singing and get good reviews from different people and on Amazon. So it's um, it's been great. And uh, last year we put out a hardcover edition too. People right. want to give it as gifts for Christmas or whatever to their young singers so now they can get a fancier fancier version amazing and did you like the process of writing was that something that you feel like you would do again it was drawn out to about five years and i was working with dr elizabeth gerby and she's a wonderful writer so either i would write something and then she would look at it or she would write something and i would look at it and i would rewrite what she wrote and kind of went back and forth Mm -hmm. um since it's called Bob Marx's 88 Keys, um, if I didn't agree with something she wrote, I said, I just, that's not what I teach, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, we, but we never had any, any problems. It was, it was kind of smooth sailing. It just took a long time. Yeah. And um, then we had proofreaders and then I accepted their changes. And then it turned out they changed the spellings to be the wrong spellings. It's just oh. a lot of <laughs> clerical work, you know? So finally, 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 it's a book I'm very proud of. Amazing. And congratulations. Well, thank you. It's so it's on Kindle. It's on softcover. It's in hardcover. It's easy to find on Amazon. Great. Thank you. And 
In your view, what are the fundamental music theory and piano skills that a singing teacher or vocal coach should have? Well, in, I say it again, in the older days, many voice teachers did not play the piano. They mm -hmm. could not read, you know, treble and bass cliff at the same time and accompany a singer. That's how I got into my office because the voice teacher needed an accompanist. Mm. Um, nowadays, the line between coach and teacher are kind of, it's a little muddy because coaches do have to know something about the voice and teachers do usually need to play at least rudimentary piano. Mm. And that's not saying you have to be able to just take Jason Robert Brown's song and just play it at sight, mm. but you need to be able to plunk out a melody, maybe just do a very simple accompaniment and play enough that you can accompany your singers. Mm -hmm. um, also, back in the day, um, when you went to an important audition, like a callback, you would bring an accompanist. We would sit in the waiting room, and sometimes there would be, you know, eight to ten accompanists there. We all knew each other, you know, said hello, and you would bring in your accompanist, and he would play. You don't see that anymore. Mm. So if I had to tell that to young people, they go, they did that? I go, yeah. And sometimes the piano was in the orchestra pit. If you were in the theater, mm. they would wheel it down on the aisle. There was one for Barnum where the two pianos were in or in boxes in the in the audience, and we had to climb up a ladder to get to the piano. So you never knew what you were going to find. It was always always an adventure. Mm. And do you include any of this like, music theory in your singing lessons? Do you help singers to read at, um, to do you help singers to identify? crescendos, decrescendos, rests, that sort of thing? When necessary, yes. And a lot of times, that's why I don't like when people come in with lyric sheets. I want them to see the music. Mm. As I tell them, it's really not hard. I mean, there are dots, and when they go up, the notes are higher. When they go down, the notes are lower. Mm. And when the black dots become white, they're held longer. That's it. Everything else is a matter of degree. So I want them to be able to see. I said, look, this note is the same one as the note before. And, and they go, oh, and they, they kind of they kind of eventually get it. Mm. Um, I don't think we have to hold exact exactly to the printed music necessarily mm. um, all the time. But they should know what the printed music is. Mm. You know, know what the right thing is before you start changing it. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So I teach them I teach them as needed. But I'm not a I'm not a music teacher as far as you know, theory or anything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I mean, I know enough theory to at least guide them and help them to read an, uh, a vocal line. Yeah. What pedagogical or singing resource do you recommend all singers or all singing teachers and, and vocal coaches to check out other than your book, of course? Of course. <laughs> um, well, there are a lot of conferences. The Voice Foundation holds a conference every year, usually in Philadelphia, and I learned a lot by attending those. I attended those very, very young, and they used to be in New York. They were at the Juilliard School, so it was mm -hmm. very convenient. Um, and I've presented there, taught there, and um, they do wonderful things, wonderful guidelines, and wonderful um, symposia that are really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, nowadays, because you can see so many things online, I think they do online courses as well. You can buy your admission and uh, start sitting through wonderful doctors, teachers, accompanists, conductors, and teaching you everything. It's, mm -hmm. it's all there. Um, I know there's things in London that are, are available and things in most big cities. So I would go to things and learn and don't just sit home and 
take voice lessons yourself, learn how to teach, learn what the technique is and learn the style and learn what other people are saying. Yeah, sure. I love that. I've really enjoyed chatting with you, Rob. Thank you so much for giving us an insight into how you came into this industry and and what's inspired you and and what you've learned. It's been really nice to to get to know you. So where can people find out more about you and what you do and get in touch if they want to have a singing lesson with you. My website is bobmarks.com, B-O-B-M-A-R-K-S.com. I'm on Instagram as Bob Marks. I'm on Facebook as Bob Marks. And I have a Bob Marks vocal studio page. Um, Twitter, Bob Marks. I got Bob Marks all over the place because when my friend suggested I go to AOL, which then was called America Online, he said, you should get your email there, not where I was. And I couldn't get Bob Marks. And I was so upset. And that, that's my name. How could I not get Bob Marks? So I vowed to make sure I got Bob Marks everywhere I could. So I got bobmarks.com, robertmarks.com. I'm all over. Even if you spell Marks wrong, I got it. Yeah, there you so go. You that's a good it. place. I and dare can... to try with Alexa because I'll set off the whole world on a, on a robot <laughs> going yes. off everywhere. So Absolutely. I'll stay away. <laughs> well, you can always be Alex. Sure. I've been called worse. <laughs> Bob, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Singing Teachers Talk podcast, and who are we kidding? Of course you are. Share the love by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a comment. Just head to the Singing Teachers Talk main page on the Apple Podcast app and scroll to the bottom to click Write a Review.